Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues, a podcast from Capital Trust Intelligence. This week, I'm joined by Andrew Batson, who is the uh, Director for China Research at GavCal. So, Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. And, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah. And uh, so, maybe before we get started, I'll, I'll just start with a, a small anecdote. So, I went to Malaysia about six months ago. And when I was there, a, a friend of mine from Hong Kong happened to be there at the same time, so we met up. And over the course of our, you know, we went out for dinner and so on. Over the course of dinner, he he kept complaining about you know small little things that were happening in uh, Hong Kong and China at the time. And uh, every time, he, every time he was complaining about something, I would say, "Why? Why are they doing that? Why is the why is this the policy?" Um, and uh, and it went from sort of mundane things to more serious things. And it eventually got to the point where he went, like, if you if you if you try to understand these policies, you're just going to go insane. So it's better to just accept them as they are, and, and you live your try and live your life uh, accordingly. So maybe what we're trying to do is insane today. I'm not sure, but uh, what, what we're going to look at is basically, I guess, China, Chinese policy and um, sort of reopening and things like that, and what's been going on over the past couple of years. So maybe maybe to get started. Um, could you could you talk a bit about why you think Chinese Chinese policy for COVID was so restrictive, and and also why there was this sudden change? I mean, it, for, for I think for most people who are not you know, keen watchers of the country, it felt like there was this really strict policy that was hard to understand, um, and then a very quick reversal that was equally hard to understand. So maybe you could talk a bit about both. Sure. I mean, I think the reversal is probably easier to understand uh, because they had no choice, right? They were forced into changing policy. So the COVID controls were breaking down um, and they could either insist that you know people, local governments, companies continue to uh, follow uh, these uh, extreme measures which weren't working or they could recognize that they weren't working Tell people, okay, fine, we're not going to do it anymore. Um, so I, I think the reversal was, you know, basically forced on them by the realities of, of what was happening um, uh, with the pandemic, which is basically that the, uh, you know, the virus had become uh, so infectious that it was extremely diff- difficult to control, um, even with the very strict measures that China employed. Um, the uh, the local governments had that you know were in charge of actually enforcing these measures had kind of different levels of competence uh, and enthusiasm uh, for enforcing these measures. So uh, some local governments were quite good at it, uh, and then others, you know, really weren't that good at it, or you know, really didn't want to do it um, for whatever reason. Uh, and because uh, some local governments, you know, weren't that good at um, restricting the spread of COVID, COVID spread. Uh, and so the weak parts of the system basically undermined the, the strong parts of the system. Uh, and eventually the whole thing came, kind of came crashing down. Um, so yeah, I, for the policy change, it's not something I think that was really uh, decided in a you know considered way at the top. Uh, I mean, of course they try to portray it that way, but that's if you, Look at the sequence of events of what happened. Uh, that's not actually how it played out. You know, they were trying to uh, retain. They were trying to retain uh, the COVID systems, but the, they basically just uh, fell apart, and so they had no choice but to, uh, you know, give up and say, "Okay, we're opening." So for the, your, the the first part of the question is like, why did they do all this stuff in the first place? I think a lot of it is just path dependency. 
you know, they, they, I think they got uh, trapped into, um, you know, a certain set of, uh, a certain set of policies, a certain set of uh, preconceptions um, uh, that were difficult to get out of. I mean, in 2022, right, uh, it was very popular for uh, people to criticize uh, China's uh, COVID policies, and everyone's like, oh, why are they doing this crazy stuff? You know, if you think back to the first half of 2021, you know, actually, China's policies were looking pretty good. Uh, you know, the lockdowns in 2020 had uh, is effectively stamped out uh, COVID, so there was no domestic transmission of COVID in China, uh, you know, unlike everywhere else in the world. Uh, they had you know, substantially reopened uh, domestically. So for many people, uh, you know, daily life had returned. Uh, the economy was booming. Uh, and they had gotten, you know, this economic boom, um, you know, without having to um, borrow and spend uh, in the way that a lot of the Western governments were. So they had a huge economic boom, um, low inflation, and, you know, not a big increase in government debt. So they didn't overstimulate the economy. So actually the China... You know, the set of trade-offs that China made uh, at that point in time was looking pretty good. And so I think their strategy was essentially, you know, okay, we've, we've, we've lit this thing. Uh, we're still, you know, closed off from the outside world because we want to prevent uh, new infections from coming in. Uh, but basically what we'll do is uh, have a vaccination campaign uh, that will achieve herd immunity. And then once we achieve herd immunity, we can sort of gradually... Uh, open up, uh, and then you know everything will be fine. Um, and then, of course, what happened is that you know the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, continued to evolve uh, into new variants, and these variants were so transmissible that basically herd immunity became impossible. And I don't think that they were prepared for that. So there wasn't an alternative strategy to achieving herd immunity. So because they had this. Uh, the set of restrictions, the only thing they could do, uh, I think they felt was to continue with was to continue with them uh, in order to not have a massive wave of COVID infections uh, and deaths, which of course is what they have just experienced. Okay, so it's all very interesting. I mean, from I think from the point of view of someone who's who's look you know casually look, looking at um, what's going on in China. I think two points tended to come out. So one of them was basically that the Chinese manufactured vaccine was not particularly effective um, and that part of the reason they did, didn't want to open up was basically because they didn't, didn't want to look bad by using Western-made ones. Um, and at the same time, you did, I think you did have some protests, which seems, again, to, that, to someone that's a casual observer, observer um, something that's quite unusual in China. So do you think is those things had any role to play or are those misconceptions? Mm, I I think people outside China some may uh you know focus too much on the the vaccine issue. Um it's true that the evidence that we have suggests that the you know Chinese vaccines were uh you know were less effective uh, than the mRNA vaccines um uh, developed outside China. Uh but you know all of the vaccines, whether Chinese or Western made, you know had some efficacy uh, in you know reducing um, uh, death rates and rates of uh, serious illness. Um, what they were not uh, good at uh, was reducing uh, transmission of the virus. Uh, and the policy goal uh, that China had set was not just that they did that they didn't wanted to have, you know, low death rates from the virus, but they didn't want to have transmission of the virus. Uh, so I think from their perspective, the <clears throat> neither the Western vaccines nor the Chinese vaccines could really achieve uh, the goal of, you know, stamping out, um, uh, stamping out transmission of COVID. I mean, it's definitely true that they uh, didn't want to use uh, the Western vaccines, um, essentially for uh, political reasons, uh, and you know, and I, I think you know, reasons of uh, international face. Um, but you know, in the end, I don't think it was the choice between a Chinese vaccine or Western vaccine that 
you know, determine the path that they were on. In terms of, and your second question about the protest, you know, I do think that the the protest had a very, uh, you know, very clear impact uh, on on COVID policy. Uh, if you look at, you know, various indicators, what was going on. So at our firm, we put together a, um, a daily indicator of uh, COVID policies. Um, so my you know, colleagues basically did this heroic work of looking every day at the actual measures announced by city, uh, 100 different uh, city governments, uh, and then kind of classifying them according to how severe they were. Uh, and so if you look at that, you know, data series that we compiled, you see that the restrictiveness of COVID policies begins to immediately decline um, after the protests. Right? Before any, before the central government had officially announced any change in policy. Right? So it's clear that the actual implementers of COVID policy, which are the local governments, responded um, to the uh, popular discontent. Um, you if you don't have access to this, another way you can see the same thing is just to look at the um, uh, test results, the test results data, so the number of COVID cases. So what's kind of counterintuitive is that immediately after the protest, the number of COVID cases plunges. And this, of course, you know, doesn't reflect reality because the, you know, the pandemic was spiraling out of control at that point. But what it means is that uh, a lot of local governments simply stopped doing tests, right? They stopped doing mandatory tests, which again are part of the whole uh, COVID control, the whole COVID control system. So you can see very clearly in the data that uh, the, gov the government immediately began to back off uh, from the most restrictive policies uh, in the face of these popular protests. So I don't, you know, I think there's no no question that that uh, that had a real impact. Okay, well maybe maybe to move on a bit. Most people now are talking about the China reopening trade quite quite often, but without much detail as to as to what that really means. Um, so could you could you talk about maybe in more tangible terms what is happening at the moment? I think the impression we have a bit is 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 that. There's been the sudden reopening and suddenly cases are spiking, which may be causing some problems. And then at the same time, that the government is also doing some things to try and get the economy moving again. Um, so can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the progress of the the COVID epidemic, uh, there's very little data now. So they've stopped publishing um, testing data, which had already become you know, unreliable. There's no real data on uh, deaths or these. The China CDC has published, uh, you know, some indicators. So most of these uh, show that uh, cases spiked in December, which was, you know, immediately after after the um, uh, controls were lifted, uh, and uh, that the peak, you know, was kind of sometime in late December, and then the case numbers have, um, you know, come down uh, substantially since then. So. And that is supported both by um, sample testing, hospitalization data, and other things. Of course, there's we don't have any independent data sources um, to, you know, contest um, the official narrative, but you know it seems to be well supported. So what happened was that by the beginning of December, there was basically no COVID controls. Um, you know, given the infectiousness of the virus, uh, it spread, and the, you know, fact that the Chinese population was basically immunologically naive, had no built-in resistance, very little vaccine protection, uh, so it swept uh, extremely rapidly uh, through the population. I think you know all the indications uh, are that uh, you know a lot of people have died uh, as a result. I don't think that we'll you know ever know the true death toll. Those uh, you know doctors have been uh, discouraged from reporting uh, COVID as a cause of death, and uh, so the system is. Very deliberately trying to minimize casualties, um, but it is nonetheless the case that it seems that the kind of initial wave uh, was probably uh, in its last uh, stages uh, by the you know first part of January, uh, and what you're seeing uh, basically is a return to something you know pretty close to normal. So the biggest effect of COVID restrictions uh, within China was on 
mobility, so short and, and long distance travel. Uh, and you've seen those uh, indicators bounce back up to, as of before the Chinese New Year, uh, something like 80% of pre-COVID levels. Uh, and the, uh, the last time I checked the charts, uh, you know, they have you know, continued to improve uh, you know, after, the, after the Chinese New Year holiday. So, you know, basically what the reopening is, is that, you know, the fundamental phenomenon is that uh, you had a, a set of restrictions that artificially suppressed uh, consumption, uh, particularly of services. So uh, travel, and recreation, restaurants, these kind of things. Um, and now that those restrictions are gone, uh, the consumption of those things is uh, returning back uh, to normal uh, to normal levels, and that uh, you know repressed consumptions. You know it's a pretty substantial uh, it's a pretty substantial share of GDP, uh, and so I think it's you know quite reasonable uh, to think that we're going to have <clears throat> a bounce um, in growth as all of these uh, as all of the you know kind of normal activities and consumer spending that were not taking place uh, during the period of COVID restrictions uh, start to take place again. Okay. I mean, maybe to, to touch on something else I think people have been concerned about, is, which is um, the real estate sector. So I think that came on people's radars probably a year and a half ago with Evergrande um, almost defaulting or did default, but that still seems like a, a potentially huge risk. So there's things I've seen where apparently projects are either being scrapped um, or they're even, according to, to one of our readers, they're even destroying projects because they, you know, they want to keep a handle on the market. Most, as, as far as I'm aware, most Chinese have their savings in real estate as well. You can correct me if I'm wrong there. So is is that a bubble that's about to burst? Is there a huge amount of risk there? Um, can you can you just talk about about what's happening in the real estate sector? Well, what's happened in you know the real estate sector last year was you know uh, basically the biggest uh, correction uh, in housing sales and uh, construction uh, in the you know history of the modern Chinese property market. Uh, so you had something like fifty uh, percent. Uh, declines uh, in new construction volumes, uh, you know, thirty percent decline in, in housing sales volumes. So, uh, so I, you know, we're not in a situation where you know we're waiting for bad things to happen. Like uh, very bad things have already happened. Uh, so, the, right, the question is, is whether you know bad things continue to happen or whether you know they get less, whether they get whether they get less bad. Yeah, I, again, I think this. Um, the extraordinary collapse in the real estate sector again is kind of a confluence of um, things that people expected and things that people didn't expect. So you've had this uh, regulatory crackdown on property developers underway since about uh, 2017. You know, basically the central government had uh, decided, uh, I think, quite correctly that um, property developers. Uh, were a major source of financial risk because uh, they were running, um, you know, highly leveraged uh, business models, um, and were, you know, basically incentivized to uh, build too much housing. Um, so uh, the government financial regulators uh, have been trying different ways to try to constrain uh, the, you know, the risk-taking behavior of uh, property developers over the last several years. Uh, and for, I think the first, you know, two or three years of this campaign from, you know, 2017 through 2019, uh, it was kind of partially effective, but not that effective in really, uh, changing property developer behavior. Uh, then of course we have the COVID interlude in 2020 and 2021, this, uh, campaign come, comes back with a vengeance, uh, and, uh, they came up with uh, some very tough, uh, very restrictive measures uh, that really reduced uh, property developers' um, access to finance uh, and started to have pretty started to have pretty serious effects on their business. And as the the industry was sort of feeling the feeling the effects of this in early 2022, got this exogenous shock uh, from the Shanghai lockdown, 
right? Where the COVID restrictions that had been fairly light up to that up to that point became uh, extremely strict uh, all over again, and this created a lot of uncertainty among people. So basically, everyone in China was like, "Well, we thought this thing, we thought this stuff was over. We thought all these restrictions were kind of going to gradually go away." And now it seems like they're never going to go away, and it's going to be here forever, and this is terrible. So you had a kind of collapse. You had a collapse in property sales that happened, um, you know, uh, in part because of the uh, the lockdown and the collapse uh, in household confidence, and then that was also driven uh, at the same time. So it's kind of difficult to disaggregate these things, but it was driven by the same time by the deteriorating financial state of the developers where as you pointed out they became you know unable to complete projects and that made people understandably reluctant to hand over a lot of money to developers so with this sharp collapse in properties in property sales that that uh, you know happened in the first half of last year this was basically the death blow for developers who are already under extreme financial stress from the loss of external financing so it's one thing you know to be find it more difficult to you know borrow from banks or to you know or to issue bonds but the main way that developers finance uh, their business is by selling houses if they're not selling houses then they really don't have any money uh, and they didn't have any access to external finance to make up the gap so that imposed a huge financial stress uh, on developers they not only had to stop you know work on existing projects but they massively cut back um, you know all the new construction purchases of uh, purchase of land for future construction simply because they didn't have any money. They had no money from sales uh, coming in the door, and they couldn't, they couldn't borrow it. So what's happened, you know, over, over the last few months is that you know, kind of simultaneously with this uh, relaxation relaxation of COVID policy, is that the government has uh, kind of come around slowly and I think somewhat reluctantly, but it has nonetheless come around to the view that it. Kind of overdid things by trying to you know crush the developers with uh, financial regulation and that the macro effects of this are just too severe so the priority now is to uh, get housing sales going again restore kind of normal funding channels for to developers and you know prevent a kind of further collapse uh, in the state sector and i think you know that's kind of where we are now so what the market is going to be looking for over the next uh, weeks and months uh, is some indication that property sales are going to normalize. They may not ever, you know, go back to their uh, pre-COVID levels, but you know, they, but if they increase a little bit, that will make a, a big difference to the financial situation for developers and help, you know, kind of halt this freefall in construction activity. Okay, so do, I mean, do you think that the sort of risk has been has gone and passed, or, or I mean, for just from some of the reading I've done around it, the amount of debt that seems to be in that system is just huge. So, do you think that, that there could still be a sort of two thousand and eight style crisis for Chinese property on the horizon, or do you think that it's already kind of happened in the past five six years, as you mentioned? Well, I mean, we've already had a huge, uh, you know, con- correction in construction activity. Uh, I. I don't think uh, construction activity in China is, you know, ever going to go back to its uh, previous levels. So, you know, we've we've had a crisis, and the effects of the, you know, crisis are are you know going to be felt for a long time. Uh, you know, the question is, you know, how long does this does the you know kind of state of affairs from last year go on? You know, I think you know one way of thinking about this risk is that uh, a lot of it in China really comes down to the attitude of the government. If the attitude of the government is that we don't like uh, property developers, and we think your business uh, should be smaller than it is now. That's not a very good environment for property developers, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, because the their financial regular the financial regulators, the local governments, everyone that they deal with is going to feel you know this uh, attitude that's been set uh, by the top, and then it filters through the system, and that's going to. Uh, and I think it is significant government, again, reluctantly, and I think they've tried to keep a lot of the things that they're doing somewhat out of the public eye, but they have accepted basically that the macro risk uh, from a collapse in the property sector is very severe, and they need to deliver direct support to developers instead of just standing back, being hands-off and saying, oh, this is not not our problem. If you guys collapse, it's, up, it's on you. So, you know, I think there has been a, a clear shift uh, in the direction of government policy, and that does change, uh, you know, the balance of risks. So I think, you know, what a lot of people are concerned about is the 
remaining risks is, you know, basically what's the attitude of households towards the property market? Are households still worried about um, uh, the financial condition of developers? Do they still think it's too risky um, to hand over, you know, a big chunk of their life savings uh, to a developer um, for a, uh, a housing unit that's they won't even receive um, for another two or three years? Or has their perception of that risk uh, changed? And of course, we don't know the answer to that yet. But the behavior of you know, property sales, um, you know, over the next uh, few weeks and months, will certainly give us some clues. Okay. okay. Well, um, I mean, one one of the things you touched on there was effectively how government has quite a big role in in uh, influencing outcomes in China, which I suppose is true in, in every country, right? But, but I think... Uh, Particularly often, so in China, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, so I think, you know, one of the things that has confused uh, investors or, or people in general, to go back to you know, the, the story I told at the beginning, were, were some of the regulatory crackdowns, which I think you touched on maybe uh, in, in your answer just then, um, so I think it was it was seemed particularly pronounced in 2021 where there was there were yeah you know, there was like the ban on private tutoring um, you had the IPO I think of Ant being scrapped in that year as well uh, there were things like limits on video games I think I think you know, how how much child time children could spend on video games and when they could watch them so I suppose I have two questions there so one is 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 there some kind of overarching goal that dictates policy in in this case right so as in is the same goal in mind when they're doing things like making app not ipo and stopping uh teenagers from playing too many video games or is it sort of done on a case-by-case basis whether you go okay this we don't want this will be bad for reason x and this will also be bad but for, for a totally different reason and therefore we will act in this way um, uh, and secondly, I mean, do you have any idea on what drives some of these things? If, if you're an investor, I think the, the sense is just that it feels incredibly arbitrary. So is there any kind of indication that something like this is coming? Or is it just that? Is it just suddenly there will just be a decision, X has to stop, and therefore it does. Um, and you just kind of have to deal with the consequences. I mean, I guess, it, I guess these decisions are arbitrary in the sense that... You know, it's a decision taken by a bureaucracy that's, you know, not that accountable. Um, are, is arbitrary the same thing as not having any warning? Um, no, not exactly. You know, I think uh, uh, in a lot of cases, there were, you know, indications about, you know, what issues regulators of various sectors were concerned about, you know, before, uh, before these things happened. Um, you know, but it but it is you know certainly the case that uh, a lot of things happened that uh, people in the affected industries uh, either didn't expect or uh, maybe more accurately you know didn't want to believe. If you look back at uh, again this early period of 2021, um, or as I mentioned, right, the, the general vibe in China was uh, you know things are going great. You know we've kicked COVID. Uh, the economy is booming. Uh, you know, we've done what you know no other economy in the world could do, which was to effectively stamp out COVID and and have a strong economic recovery. So there's this huge degree of confidence, you know, not to say hubris, uh, you know, I think among the uh, officials in the Chinese government at that time. And actually, the official documents, like the readouts from poly, polybeer meetings. Uh, policy documents in the early part of 2020 said this pretty clearly. They said, right, what's happening in, in China now is we're having a very strong uh, growth rebound, you know, because we're, you know, coming out of this pit from the COVID lockdowns. So we've got incredible growth momentum um, in the economy right now. And that means, um, you know, for the first time in a while, actually, you know, we don't need to obsess about cyclical economic policy. Right. I mean, everybody's forgotten everything that happened, you know, before COVID in 2020. But you know, actually, the situation for the Chinese economy wasn't particularly great. You know, growth was slowing; things were kind of blah. Uh, so this wonderful boom that happened kind of naturally in 2021 was just um, just fantastic. 
And they said explicitly, you know, we have a window of opportunity now to do uh, structural reforms that we might not otherwise be able to do because the economy is going gangbusters. It gives us a little more to do this stuff. And this is, uh, you know, when they started to make uh, more concrete uh, some of these big slogans and concepts uh, that the top leader Xi Jinping had been talking about for things like, the list is so long, you know, so self-sufficiency and technology, the common prosperity, the new development pattern, the dual circulation, whatever. There's a lot of of buzzwords and Chinese uh, government jargon here. Um, and these have been kind of floating around for a while. And what really happened in 2021 is they, those you know, abstract uh, concepts started to be implemented. You know, the rubber hit the road uh, and people figure out, started to figure out like, oh, this is what they really mean. This is what the government really wants. And you know, what the government wanted in many cases is kind of more control uh, over uh, the freewheeling industries, um, particularly the tech sector. The tech sector had basically been... Um, Tech sector meaning you know things to do with the internet, uh, you know, it's essentially been unregulated or very lightly regulated uh, for the last couple of decades. The companies in that sector had gotten quite used to uh, being able to do essentially what they wanted, um, you know, and sort of you know notifying the government that you know, yeah, this is what we're going to do, but you know not really asking for permission. And the you know general vibe of a lot of those regulatory restrictions was no. You need to go from just uh, you know telling us uh, what you're going to do to asking us whether you can do it and whether it's a good idea. That's sort of the general shift that happened there. Yeah. Well, one thing I've, I'm curious about is whether 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 the goal of these things is is sort of economic or, or almost cultural and social. So if I think about something like the the scrapping of Ant, the Ant IPO. And how that company was structured, I actually can understand the financial risks involved and why it would make make economic sense to stop that from happening. I, I don't think actually that that product would be allowed to in the UK or, or US. So I, I can see why, where they're, they're coming from there. But then if you look at something like private tutoring or restrict, <laughs> restricting people's access to video games, it feels that there doesn't seem to be really be an economic incentive there. It just feels like more of controlling people's lives, but I don't really understand for what purpose. Yeah, I think you know, I think that's broadly true, right? So not all of these um, you know, different measures were taken by the same parts of the bureaucracy or had the same targets or had the same goals, right? So there wasn't, you know, sort of one overarching goal that then dictated all of these different things that are happening. There's um, you know, a number of uh different goals which were kind of you you know, unified conceptually, perhaps, but um, different in practice. So yeah, I think it's you know, and it's very much a characteristic of the of the Chinese system that the government feels um, not only entitled to kind of regulate a social as well as economic activities, but obliged to. Right, the government's job and in China is to ensure that China develops in a positive way. And that's not something that's limited to the economy, right? That's something that encompasses, you know, all aspects of life. So the government feels an obligation to uh, tackle social problems. Uh, In this case, um, you know, Teenagers like spending like too much time uh, playing video games, or alternatively, you know, too much time, you know, cramming um, in like after-school courses and like you know, uh, uh, disturbing their normal pattern of development. Right? So yeah, yeah, it's it's just a um, you know, it's just a different uh, kind of regulatory concept. It's a different concept of you know, what's the appropriate role of government? Like, what are the appropriate boundaries? Um, there's not, uh, you know, there's not really a kind of dividing line between, oh, it's, we can, you know, we can regulate things in the economy, but then we don't regulate things that are not in the economy. There, there's no such line, right? That's, that's all one thing. Yeah. 
Vinny, can you talk a bit about, I mean, how, how those decisions are made? So you, you, something you touched on was uh, the sort of bureaucracy. I've, I've read some arguments, and uh, probably listeners won't, uh, won't agree with this, but some arguments that actually the, the Chinese bureaucracy is incredibly efficient at finding sort of good people and also incredibly meritocratic. Um, I know that, again, most people listening will, will be uh, very skeptical about that, but that those people are then that I, I suppose most people's perception of China is that it's a very top-down system and that its power is extremely centralized. But I think for, from from the course of this conversation, right, you've talked a lot about how local governments actually enact policies and also how a lot of decisions aren't really made by some some you know Xi Jinping is not sitting at the top and just telling everyone what to do. There's actually a wider technocratic class, if you want to call it that, around him. Um, so if if you if you took the example of say, I don't know, again, it, it feels silly to do it, but let's say if you're looking at something like the video game ban, I mean, how is a decision like that reached? I mean, is there a kind of bureaucracy dealing with you know, social problems among teenagers and they go, okay, we now have to make this policy? Um, or, or is it actually much more top down than, I, than I'm suggesting it is? Yeah, I, I'm actually not, you know, particularly well informed about video game regulation, so I know <laughs> that I can, you know, speak to the the policy making process there. I, yeah, just to you know, in more general terms, I think China, uh, you know, historically, you know, and, and I've been working on China for you know more than twenty years, so I've seen that you know a few things kind of a few things come and go. Uh, China historically. Is pretty uh, is pretty decentralized uh, in the way most decisions are made. Um, so a lot of uh, uh, local governments, who um, of course you know have authority over like millions and, and tens of millions of people, so they're not you know small entities at all. Uh, you know have a lot of authority um, in different parts of the bureaucracy. Also, you know make kind of make their own uh, decisions. There's a lot of, uh, you know, consultation between businesses and the government. Um, so, you know, China is not that good at formal uh, transparency of, you know, regulations and, and policy decisions, but there is, you know, a level of informal transparency where, uh, you know, regulators will, you know, meet with uh, people in the regulated industries and they talk about stuff and, you know, companies get guidance about, you know, what regulators like and don't like and kind of, you know, what's coming down the pike. Um, so I, but what uh, has changed, I think, in the, in the perception of a lot of people, uh, you know, inside and outside China, um, you know, over the last uh, decade or so that she has been in power is that uh, it has become a bit more top down. The room to maneuver of you know individual government agencies and individual local governments um, has been somewhat circumscribed. Um, they are you know under a lot more uh, pressure to do things that uh, you know clearly adhere to the uh, priorities uh, articulated by the center, uh, and they uh, suffer. Serious risks uh, if they are found not to be uh, complying with um, uh, policy priorities. Right, they can be you know convicted for uh, corruption and go to jail and lose their job or you know, lose their life. Right, so downside you know downside risks uh, for being a government official in China are actually quite serious. Um, yeah, kind of mess. Yeah, so there. Yes, so you know, I I think what um, uh, you know what people are experiencing and kind of reacting to over the last few years uh, is a shift from a more uh, decentralized, more I don't want to say bottom up, but sort of more consultative uh, governing style uh, to one that is a little bit more uh, top down, where instructions you know flow down the pyramid uh, from the top levels to the to the lower levels uh, and there's you know less you know feedback uh, you know going up and they're going up the pyramid um, so that seems to be the 
the feeling of a lot of uh, participants in the Chinese system. I realize that's kind of you know general. <laughs> there is a you know there is a lack of transparency about you know how decisions are made generally in China, so it's hard to get super precise about it. Uh, but I think everyone agrees that that is something like that is you know, roughly the case. Yeah, I think another another thing that perhaps partly because of COVID and also because of, of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that people have forgotten, or, or so it's more more at the back of their mind than it than it would have been previously is the tensions between the US and China. So the past couple of months, we've seen some, China seems like it's done some things to lure foreign investment back. So you had, I think in December, there was, they, they finally reached an agreement about US listings of, of ADRs, um, basically give it, having more transparency with their accounts and things. But nonetheless, there still seems to be, still seems to, be the case that that is going to be an ongoing problem, right? So I think of something like sanctions on you know, China and their ability to access semiconductors and things like that. So I'm curious what you think the dynamics there are at the moment and, and what is likely to happen going forward and what China is doing, if, if anything, to sort of pr- prepare itself or, or defend itself against um, sanctions and things like that. I mean, you know, I don't think this is a secret. It's, uh, you know, the declared priority of the Chinese government um, over the last three to four years uh, is that they need to um, become, you know, more self-sufficient in science and technology. Uh, and reduce the ability of external actors, uh, particularly the U.S., um, to affect uh, China's, you know, own development of uh, science, uh, technology, and industry. So that is the that is the number one uh, top priority in the five-year plan. It's the top priority that's mentioned in you know every uh, speech. Uh, Xi Jinping, the you know Polybeer Standing Committee just had their uh, you know uh, first uh, study session in the new year. She gave them the speech again. We've got to you know improve our improve our self sufficiency, our autonomy uh, in science and technology. We've got to reduce the uh, vulnerability of China to these uh, choke points countries and governments uh, have leverage. So, you know, there is a whole of society, a whole of government uh, effort to address this problem, which they uh, think is very serious, uh, that has been underway for you know, a few years now, uh, and I think has, you know, very broad uh, buy-in across, uh, you know, Chinese society and the business sector. Uh, uh, Chinese people, Chinese businesses think these, you know, U.S. sanctions are, you know, ridiculous abuse of power, um, you know, an unjustified ability to, uh, an unjustified intervention um, in China's, you know, uh, drive to, you know, become, um, you know, a richer and, um, you know, more powerful civilization. and you know they won't stand for it. Um, so you know all that stuff is pretty clear. It's out there. Yeah. Okay, but I mean, I'm curious on the something like the semiconductor front. Do you see them being capable of actually being able to achieve that sort of um, self sufficiency? Because it seems. I mean, I think even uh, you know most countries will probably struggle to do that, and it seems as though. Um, They've kind of made some efforts at trying to, but I think are kind of struggling. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's a question of you know what does self sufficiency mean, right? Uh, so I think maybe we can distinguish between you know relative self sufficiency and absolute self sufficiency. Um, so I think for a, a product like uh, semiconductors, you know, which are the 
the most uh, complex devices uh, ever manufactured by human beings. Uh, the idea of absolute uh, self-sufficiency uh, for any country uh, is just illusory. You know, there's no such thing. Um, you know, the industry, the it's a very it's a very complex industry. It's a very complex industry with um, a very precise, uh, very fine uh, division of labor uh, scattered across uh, you know the entire globe. So there's no country, there's no country in the world, including China, that has a you know fully self sufficient semiconductor industry. It's not even clear. You know, so I think the idea of absolute self-sufficiency, you know, maybe like some people in China, you know, do actually hold to this idea. Uh, but I think most people in, in the industry know that, you know, absolute self-sufficiency is just a fantasy. Um, doesn't mean the politicians, you know, aren't going to try to achieve it, but, you know, it's not a real goal that can be achieved. But, uh, you know, if we take a less, less kind of absolutist view, can China become, you know, relatively more self-sufficient in semiconductors? Can it rely less on pieces of the global supply chain that are located outside China? Uh, can it have, you know, um, uh, more control over intellectual property that's held, you know, domestically within China? You know, and here the answer is clearly yes. Yes, they can, you know, relatively uh, increase their uh, self-sufficiency over time, um, you know, particularly in the you know mature parts of the industry where the technology is um, well understood and you know spread uh, and you know spread widely across the world. I think, you know, it's much more difficult at kind of the leading edge, and that's where a lot of the attention, uh, the media attention, is focused, and a lot of you know where the U.S. sanctions in particular are focused. So, you know, no, I don't think it's, you know, realistic for uh, China to think that in the near term they can, you know, become, uh, you know, self-sufficient in, in the leading edge of uh, semiconductor technology, uh, you know, but I'm not sure that, that that's, you know, actually the goal. Probably the goal is to become relatively uh, self-sufficient as a broader swath of the industry. Okay, well, maybe to finish off, I think, so most, most people listening to this will be individual investors who are, who are not in China, they're in the UK. And are probably pondering whether or not they should be invested in in Chinese companies. I I went to an event about six months ago, and what was quite interesting was speaking to people. I think it it, it sort of became apparent that after Russia invaded Ukraine, I think a lot of people had this realization of of what it means to be invested in a country that is governed in, let's say, a a less transparent, more authoritarian, more authoritarian way. So if I think of, of investing in Russia, right, you could talk about how great a company like Yandex is or or Gazprom's dividends, but actually it's kind of irrelevant if a single day all of that can just be wiped out um, and it and you effectively can't predict whether or not that is going to happen. Um, and I think many people had sort of thought were either thinking already or were starting to wonder whether actually exactly the same thing applies to China. So I'm curious if you have any kind of thoughts around that. Do you think that China is going to be able to maintain or lure back foreign investors um, this year and moving forward in general? Uh, I mean, the short answer is apparently yes, because the uh, you know inflows from foreign investors into uh, you know Chinese domestic stocks uh, you know had their biggest uh, month of all time uh, in January. Uh, so there's been a pretty big change in uh, you know foreign investor sentiment, at least in the short term. Um, you know. To, let me give you a little, try to give you a little sort of more thoughtful answer on this. You know, over the years, uh, you know, talking to a lot of our clients, uh, institutional investors, you know, a lot of them were very interested in finding a way to benefit uh, from the long-term growth story of China, but also uh, avoid um, what they saw as the political risks and lack of transparency uh, involved in the communist system. And a lot of investors, you know, came to the conclusion that the way to do that, to achieve both of those goals, uh, was to, you know, buy shares in the Chinese private sector internet companies. So these were companies that were clearly in a, a growth growing part of the economy. 
they were uh, targeting, you know, consumer demand rather than, you know, government uh, spending or SOEs or whatever. Uh, and crucially, you know, they were run by, you know, profit-seeking entrepreneurs. They were run by guys who, uh, you know, wanted to make uh, tons of money uh, by, you know, uh, providing like internet services to even a million people. And it seemed that, you know, generally the government was, you know, okay with that and had, you know, given them space to do that. So from a, an, you know, a Western investor's perspective, this is sort of the, you know, it's the best of all possible worlds. You have all of the Chinese growth potential and then you have none of like the weird China stuff of, you know, state investment and intervention and communist party jargon, right? So, you know, so really what happened in that, you know, regulatory crackdown or whatever you want to call it in, in 2021 is that this uh, thesis was uh, proved to be wrong. That, in fact, there wasn't a special sector of the economy that was immune to government influence and where you didn't have to worry about you know, communist party slogans or state intervention. In fact, the, the internet uh, sector was also vulnerable uh, to these issues, just like every other sector of the Chinese economy. You know, and I think that was a pretty big shock um, for a lot of uh, uh, a lot of people who had hoped uh, that you know the internet sector was going to uh, was going to be different. So, you know, and I. And of course, you know the internet companies have had a you know very nice rally since um, uh, since uh, late last year. Uh, so obviously, you know a lot of investors are um, you know happy to own those shares you know once again. But I I do think that the you know the kind of uh, change in mindset or the you know change in the perception about how China works is is a, is a permanent one. So I you know I don't think that uh, people are going to go back to this view that oh here's this you know, sector of the Chinese economy where I don't have to worry about government influence and I can just put my money in and kind of forget about it and not pay, and you know not pay attention to what's going on so I you know I don't think that kind of uh, strategy is coming back but you know it could still be the case that the uh, you know that the internet companies um, uh, that their shares have you know a lot of upside from here because they got quite beaten down and you know the short-term policy tone has definitely shifted there. Okay, well, uh, an uncertain note on which to finish. So, Andrew, thanks very much. <laughs> thanks very much for doing this. And um, uh, hopefully in the future we can do do it again and enjoy further common prosperity or something like that anyway. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Look forward to it.